0: Well, good morning. I love what you've done with the place. Look a little bit younger. It's great to be here. I will give you everything I have, voice-wise. Uh, I've been struggling with uh, uh, cold and flu and uh, things like that over these last few days. So, um, I, I had to say to, and Andy and I were just talking that I am so stunned at how still everyone is this morning. And uh, usually if uh, if kids are in our church, they're just going kind of all over the place and uh, rather lively. But you boys and girls are doing a great job. It's great to see you paying attention. Well, I am Pastor Tim Lewis, and it's great to see a lot of you. I've not met a lot of you. Um, We are Mm -hmm. church planters out to Hampton, New Hampshire, and uh, it's an exciting time to see what God is doing out in New Hampshire. We've been... Church planting now technically for five and a half years, and uh, we've seen our ups and our downs, and uh, we're actually in a ninth growing season right now. Uh, Summer is now officially kicking off soon. Memorial Day is coming, and so for us, that means our population explodes. So typically in the winter, we have about 15,000 people inside (coughs) the area of Hampton. Uh, Once summer hits, we can have up to 500,000 people uh, within our area. So it makes uh, traveling a little bit difficult, a little bit slow. You just have to know the back roads. And uh, believe it or not, church attendance doesn't really spike for us. Because if you figure this way, um, people or Christians these days don't go to the beach on vacation. Uh, It's not a nice place to actually go. Uh, It's really kind of a a difficult uh, area. Uh, We don't live or or work on the beach. We're a few miles inland. But God is doing uh, some incredible things. Um, I want to share with you what He has done here in these last few months. And so go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. in chapter 3, I want to read verses 20 and 21 this morning. Sorry that I could not meet your pastor. We have exchanged many emails. Um, I'm excited to see him, but it's good to see his family here as well. How many of you make it a practice to return on Sunday nights? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to implicate anybody. Um, I do want to just encourage you that uh, pastor asked me to give a series over this week and next week on a topic that is really at the heart of Christianity today. You'll find that Christianity comes in cycles. You'll get conservative waves, you'll get very liberal waves. We are in a time where millennials, if you know what that term means, Generation Y, have taken over conservative churches. And Generation Y is called that because they always ask, why, why, why? And so often we'll find standards or topics of difficulty that they want to know about and so this evening I'll be doing half of a lecture and then uh, coming up next week as well on whether or not God wants us as believers to participate in the drinking of alcohol I don't want to do it from a statistical standpoint I don't want to do that from a theory standpoint what I want to do is I want to open the Word of God with you and show you what the scriptures actually say And so uh, if you come this evening, I'll give you a two-year study uh, that I've been doing. And I hope it's a blessing to you to be a time where I hope you walk away going, I didn't know that about the Scriptures. Um, So I encourage you to come here this evening. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. I'm sorry, 3, verse 20. Know unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto Him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's blessing this morning on this message. Father, it is a joy to be here this morning. Thank You for bringing these people, the flock of God, here together. Father, it's always a joy to know that whether one lives on the East Coast or one lives in the West, that You are at work through Your people and Lord, I pray that as we study the scriptures this day, that it would be a time that we'd be greatly encouraged by the scriptures, that you would teach us much. Father, I agree with John the Baptist when he said, I must decrease and you must increase. Hide this foolish preacher behind the cross of Christ, that Christ alone might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most of you know that I've had some large health issues over these last few months. If you don't remember, let me give you a refresher what's been going on. I've been struggling with some gut or health issues over the last couple of years, and it all came to a head this past December. Uh, one morning after it was this Monday morning, I got up, and typically Mondays are rough days for pastors. We try to recoup and rest and uh, get our energy back. But I woke up to some very severe pain, and I'm not one to actually tap out and go to a hospital. But I told Andy, I said, you know, if this gets any worse or it is as bad tomorrow, I'm going to need to go see a doctor. And so Tuesday came and it was actually worse. And so she loaded me into her SUV and she drove me to a, uh, just a, a little clinic where I got a full physical and the doctor looked at me and she said, I can't do anything to help you. You need to go to the ER. And so we went over just a few miles over to the ER and I waited uh, for a CAT scan. They gave me some medicine. It didn't stop the pain. So they had to give me something else and finally I was happy. I made it into the CAT scan and I came out and come to find out that I had ruptured a hole inside my colon. Can I just say that that is not a very pleasant experience, and I don't recommend it. It's really not something you ever want to go through. There's different ways that doctors will treat a ruptured colon. Uh, Sometimes they'll just give hard doses of antibiotics with the hope that it will actually heal itself. That was the course that we took. And so I was in the hospital for four days, and I was let out, uh, went home for about a week, and all of a sudden, the pain started to return. And so I made a call, and we got into to see the surgeon. And so I believe that was right before Christmas. And he looked at me and said, well, what are you doing Monday? And I said, well, it's December 21st. Uh, I don't really want to come in and have surgery on that day. It's Christmas week. He said, okay, but this needs to happen. And so fortunately for me, surgery didn't happen on the 21st. I had a whole extra day to pray about it. So I went in for surgery on December 22nd, where they removed a very large portion of my colon and stitched me all back up together. I was very thankful the surgery went rather well. Um, come to find out if it didn't go well I'd probably be in a colostomy bag for up to four months and so uh, by God's grace I didn't have to go through that. Um, Physically I'm still in the recovery process I'm not 100% yet but I look back and I think over what God has done inside our lives and our church through that difficult time. It is great to see That there were more people attending our church than when I had first left. I was out of the pulpit for almost two months. And I came back and I actually got to meet new faces. And I told them, don't get any ideas, that's not going to be normal, okay? Um, But God does not need a pastor to grow a church. Because Christ grows the church. It was wonderful to see that the men of our church stepped up. I have been particularly Brother Scott Button, who many of you know. He's filled pulpit here last year, uh, two years ago, I believe. He'll be out uh, in, in the fall again with the hunting trip. A very faithful man of God filled our pulpit. He filled our pulpit again this morning just to see God use him in an incredible way and a blessing to our flock. It was wonderful to be out of the pulpit and know that there was a man that was feeding the flock that God has given to us. That was just such a blessing. As I got back into the pulpit, February came, and things started to get better. But on February 12th, another trial that was unexpected hit us. My father went home to be with the Lord. We actually had been really knowing that that would be coming. We just didn't expect it so soon. And so it was a shock, and it was very sad. Dad had been struggling with dementia now for about four years, the onset of Alzheimer's. Physically, he had really failed in the last few months. And so God took him home to glory. It was wonderful to sit my son Judson down and tell him the morning that uh, Grampy had gone to heaven. And he literally said, oh yay, he's not in pain anymore. Trials are difficult, aren't they? This morning I want to share with you the theme that I shared with our church when I stepped back into the pulpit the first time after my surgery. And I want to take a few moments to establish this theme and really challenge you to make it your theme For 2016. It's really not something that is deep theologically. All of you can understand it no matter how old you are. All of you can learn it and practice it. And the theme is this My God is able. My God is able. I want to take you through Ephesians chapter 3 this morning and show you how and why God is able. I want to examine, first of all, the context of Ephesians chapter 3. You know, if we look at verse 14, we find out that we are actually looking at a prayer of Paul. He says, For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you do when you bow your knees to the Heavenly Father? You'll pray. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. What is Paul's prayer request? Verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might and by spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that ye might be fulfilled with all the fullness of God. What an incredible prayer. Paul isn't fooling around here. He's actually giving a prayer that is a strong desire. In verse 13, he says, Wherefore, I desire that you don't faint, but rather what? In through that whole prayer that they are strong and founded on the Word of God. You know that word desire in verse 13, Wherefore, I desire... It's the Greek word ayateo. It's a very lovely word in the sense it's this. Paul has an authority as an apostle. Because Christ has made him an apostle, he can use what we would call his apostolic authority to make demands upon the church. So he literally could have said, in the name of Christ, in the name that I'm an apostle, I want you to do this. That's not what he does. Rather, this word desire actually means I beg you, I implore you, I ask you. And so Paul is telling us something very, very personal. He's not demanding that they do something. But rather he's asking that they learn what the fullness of God is. That fullness we find in verse 13 Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul says, I don't want you to faint, even though I'm going through tribulations right now. If you know anything about the book of Ephesians, where is Paul writing from? Anybody? How about Rome? What is Paul doing in the city of Rome? He's not on vacation, ladies and gentlemen. He's actually a prisoner in Rome. He has been arrested for doing what? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else, but simply preaching Jesus Christ crucified. And he doesn't want this church to faint. I want you to think about this for a moment. We are not here in America yet, but it could be coming. What if... Your pastor were preaching from this pulpit and the authorities came in because he was preaching the gospel and they accused him of hate speech and took him out and arrested him and threw him in jail. Would you faint? Would you be concerned? Would you be frightened? Would you be back in the same location next week whether he is here or not? That is exactly what the Ephesian church is going through. Their founding pastor, their apostle, the one who spent years in Ephesus, has been arrested for preaching the gospel. And Paul says, I don't want you to faint. You know, this Greek word faint is rather an interesting word. Sometimes it gives the idea of don't lose heart. We know that Paul doesn't literally mean faint, right? So now he's not saying that you put your hand to your head and oh, right, faint. That's not what's saying here. How about this? Don't lose heart. Let's even carry that idea to a stronger position. Be courageous. Be courageous. Let me ask you this. What do you call someone who is not courageous? A coward. I think that is the evidence, the strength of this argument here. Paul's saying, faint not. He's saying, don't be a coward. I don't know if I would be a coward or not in this circumstance. The apostle that planted your church and led you to the Lord is in jail because he preaches the gospel. What is your reaction? Well, I don't know. I'm super holy Christian. I would stand up and go, right? I don't know. We pray that we would be faithful in such a circumstance. But I think what Paul is saying is don't be weary. Don't be frightful. Don't be a coward. And so by way of introduction, Paul says, I don't want you to be a coward. Here's what's really interesting at the end of verse 13. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Okay, now get this. Just listen to what the text said. Paul says, faint not... Because I'm in jail in my tribulations, because I am in jail, it is a glory to you. How in the world can the Apostle Paul being in jail be a glorious thing to the church? Does that make any sense to you? That is literally what the Bible text says. Well, think of it this way. Because one man was called by God to be the apostles of the Gentiles, so this man goes all throughout Asia Minor, preaching the gospel and planting churches. These people accept Christ for themselves. They are now saved and redeemed. The church of God. Isn't that the most glorious thing you have ever heard? I mean, why else are you here this morning? I don't think that this is a social club. I don't think that this is an entertainment group. If you can't be entertained, I'm sorry. I'm not that entertaining this morning. It is the glory that the reason the Apostle Paul is in jail, because the Ephesians accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. There is nothing more beautiful than that. And he's saying, listen, don't you be afraid because I'm in jail. You have eternal life. You accepted it. What a glorious statement. What a glorious thing. And so Paul is now going to plunge even deeper into our trials and tests and how to respond. Let me just look at these things very quickly. If you're taking notes, I've got three points. I'm a good Baptist this morning, okay? I want to look at this summation of prayer Paul's going to give us here at the end of chapter 3. He's going to take that whole prayer and now sum it up in two verses. So number one, Paul is going to tell us, My God... Is able. My God is able. Look at verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. You know what he just said? My God is able. You know, if we were to go around the room this morning and we were to ask individuals and say, Is God able? You know what we would see? Oh, yes, Pastor. Yes, absolutely. God is able. Amen, Pastor. But let me ask you something. Do you live your lives in a way that displays that God is able? Because there's a difference between nodding your head and saying, yes, Pastor, than actually living your lives out by saying, yes, God, you are able, I depend, and I trust in you. After all, What Christian would ever doubt the power of God? Raise your hand, folks. Let's be practical. Let's be real. We are sinners in the flesh, and even though we are redeemed, far too often we doubt the power of our God. Yeah, we know all the theological terms. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. We all have great theology. But are we willing to live our lives in a manner as if God is able? Because there's a difference. Let's look at verse 20 in detail here. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. The words exceeding, abundantly, above all. I'm going to get very technical here. And let me tell you why. Because this is exciting. Inside the Greek language, this is called a super superlative. Are you with me? Now, Let me explain this. Okay? The way that a Greek, when he is writing in the text, to strengthen an idea, he makes a sandwich. And I know some of you boys just want, sandwich? Yeah, really? Here's what he does. He'll make a statement. To make it stronger... Slap. He puts something bigger on top of it. To make it stronger, slap. He puts something bigger on it. Inside English, we don't necessarily do that. But in Greek, they stockpile thoughts upon thoughts to try to get a stronger thought or idea. And so we're going to look at three thoughts right here in this passage. Number one is the basic idea of exceeding. It means more than necessary. Gentlemen, this is what you do to the lug nuts on your car when you change your tire and your wife has to try to change a flat and she cannot get it off because you have been exceeding in your strength to get that tire and those lug nuts on the car. God is exceeding. His power isn't just sufficient. It is overly sufficient. More than necessary. The second word we find is abundantly. Here's what this means. Incapable of being exhausted. Perhaps we could demonstrate it after church. If we go out on the front lawn and you watch my son for the next five hours. It's almost as if he's incapable of being exhausted. Anybody have that problem? Okay, good. We're on the same page. God is incapable of being exhausted. When does God's grace, when does God's power, when does God's mercy run out? Never. Never. It's always flowing. Not only do we have exceeding, abundantly, but the third word is above all. It means it's the heightens of the sense. In English we would say this. God is excessively able to super abundantly do anything infinitely beyond our human comprehension. That's a very literal translation of verse 20. But let me put it this way so you understand it. There's nothing you can consider. There's nothing that you can ponder. There's nothing that you can imagine that God has not already been there and thought about it. Perhaps we could ask it this way. Did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? That's power. He's infinite. God is able because he is God. Let me illustrate it this way, and I don't have time to go out of these texts, but I think you'll understand the first text right away. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. How did he do that? He spoke. So let me get this straight. Over in the next six days, God is going to speak. And he's going to bring this universe into line in perfect shape, in perfect manner. He is going to choose to rest on day seven. And he all does it just by simply uttering the words and it's done. So what problem do you have that God cannot take care of? My God is able. Philippians 3 verse 10 Wonderful text of scripture says that the idea of giving the power of God is found in the resurrection. We look at many different things in our Hollywood industry today. And um, I was invited to actually give a, a session in coming up in the fall on examining uh, why Hollywood is so fascinated with Jesus Christ. It's interesting, I start looking into the different sources. I'm not one to sit down and typically look at these movies. A lot of people will say, hey, have you ever seen that movie, whatever it is, The Passion, The Son of God? You know, I always like to say, nah, I read the book, it's way better. You know what's amazing? How many people miss the fact that the gospel is not the death and the burial of resurrection, I'm sorry, the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. They miss the fact that if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, there is no gospel at all. And so not only can God create in Genesis 1, but we know throughout the New Testament, what does he do? He recreates. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the power of God can take a man from absolute death into absolute life. And if he can do that spiritually with your salvation and you trust your salvation eternally with him, why can't he do that in every other area of your life? And the answer is, my friends, you can. My God's able. There's no doubt our human minds cannot comprehend how God is able. He is excessively able to abundantly do anything infinitely beyond our human comprehension. He's above all that we ask. He's above all that we think. My God is able. Since that is a fact, we have to be real though. My God is able, but number two, I am not able. My God is able, but I am not. When we come to the end of verse 20, according to the power that worketh in us, Obviously, we do not have the power to save ourselves. We can believe with all our hearts that God is able, but we must come to the realization that, frankly, there is no possible way that in and of yourself you can live for God without His help and without His aid. Why? Because I'm limited. The very beginning of verse 20 says. Now, unto him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think. You know, there's really two conflicts that we look in our society. What is above us? God is above us. He's looking down, and as God watches us, he sees that there are struggles inside our society against him. It's very easy to look in a society's religion, and I'll label that as what we would call humanism. Our society will teach us that we are gods, that we are the ones in control of our destiny. In fact, if you ask some presidential candidates, they will tell you that they are gods. Absolutely true. You know what? To the pagan, to the atheist, they are the ultimate peace in their existence. There is nothing greater than themselves. There is nothing more important than life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm not trying to mock our founding fathers and the wonderful documents that we had that established our country. But friends, if your passion in life is liberty and the pursuit of happiness, you've missed the word of God. Our passion is the glory of God. And so our society follows a religion against God. It follows itself. But you know what? Here's the problem. It has infected the local church... So that the local church no longer accepts that we must bow our knee to our God. But rather, God has become our buddy and our pal and our friend. If you don't believe me, go home right now, turn on the television, and guess what you'll find? You will find preachers, popular radio, TV evangelists, that may take a little bit of scripture. They rub it together with some warm fuzzies, and they give you some self-help guides... And you walk out of that service feeling like you just stepped out of a self-help book. That is not our faith. God is infinite and we are not. We are limited. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. Psalm 103 verse 15 says this, As for man, his days are as grass and a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. James 4.14 is a very familiar verse to you. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a moment, a little time, and then vanisheth away. Do you realize that we are limited? God's not limited, but as a human being we are limited. Why is it that we are limited? I think it all boils down to something that a lot of people don't like to talk about these days. It's a little word called S-I-N. Sin. We are depraved in our sin. It's the truth in the scriptures. Romans 7.18 For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present in me but how to perform that which is good. I find it not. Paul goes on in verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? We have a problem. We are limited in what we can do because of our depravity of sin. So if God is able, but yet I am not, what is the solution? Solutions number three found at the end of verse 20 and into verse 21. I must trust in his ability. Because my God is able, and because I am not, I must trust my God's ability. Friends, there really is the time when the rubber meets the road. You can choose to live in fear, doubt, anxiety. You can live in a manner that says my God is able You can second guess God. You can be fooled to a path of destruction. But let me just remind you some things about God being able and trusting Him. First of all, do you realize that God does not have to operate in your box? What do I mean by that? Here's how we go through life. There are things that I am comfortable with. Now, I will confess to you this morning, I am not a Westerner. I am a cranky New Englander. That's just the way I am, okay? There are certain things that I say, this is my comfort zone. I love everything inside my box. But my box isn't necessarily Scripture. It's just what I'm comfortable with. But here's the problem. You and I will get to a point in our lives... Where we say, you know what, God, for me to be happy, you have to operate inside my box. God doesn't fit in your box. God doesn't have to be condemned to your way of thinking, to your box. Have you ever heard anyone say, well, if I were God, I would... Whoa. Put on the brakes, friends you can't even imagine what it is to be like God. You can't think how the Almighty exists in eternity. You cannot understand how His knowledge and His power work and how dare we put ourselves in a position that we would ever try to think like the Almighty. How many times in life though, And let's make this very practical. How many times have you become angry or annoyed because God did not do something the way that you wanted it done? Does that happen often? If we're honest, it does. But that's when we start learning about God and about ourselves. The first thing we learn is this. God is God and He doesn't need my input. Now he wants to hear our prayers. He wants to see us as faithful. He wants as a father loving his children to treat us well. But he is still God. He still rules and he still reigns. You know when we talk about that type of terminology. We say that God is sovereign. And it is true. He doesn't have to operate by human standards. That he has set. For him. We don't come to this place and say you know. I'm in church this morning. We are going to do what we want to do because this is the way we like to do it. Now I know this church and we've been in this church many times through the years. I don't know your pastor, but I do know that if he came in here and said, you know, we're just going to start doing things our own way. I'm pretty sure that most of you would throw him out. That's not what this place is about. We have to do things God's way. But I admit, though, there are certain times in my life that I don't understand why God does certain things. Why does God allow hundreds of Christians to be beheaded by terrorists? Does that break your heart? It breaks mine. Why does God allow Christian people to die from disease when He has the ability to heal them? I think we have three or four friends right now that are dying of brain cancer tumors. Wonderful Christian people. Why does God do that? Why does God allow children to be born with horrible birth defects? Why does God allow me as a pastor to be out of the pulpit for two months, still not regaining my strength? But this is where the rubber meets the road. We can sit here and we can ask God, why, why, why? Or we can look around and say, God, what is it that you want me to learn from this? And the truth is that we may never find out the why until we enter into glory. And if you can actually remember to ask Him, it was probably very insignificant in the first place because His plan is bigger. You know, that is a God that at times I don't understand because He does things beyond my comprehension. He is not a God that I can control. He is not a God... That at times in my flesh I am too happy with. But my God is bigger than me. My God is bigger than my box. And He's beyond my capacity. And here's the kicker in verse 21. God will always accomplish His will. Look at verse 21. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Throughout all ages, world without end. Friends, why are you here this morning? Why did God create you? It's to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. God created you for His eternal purposes. Now for each and every one of you, that may be a slightly different task that He's going to call you to do. But yet at the same time, we are always to glorify our God. Can God's purpose ever fail? Yes. 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 When we sin and we reject the will of God and we doubt God has this perfect purpose for us and it's just beautiful in His will and we say you know God I don't want that that purpose cannot permeate us and we cannot accomplish His will. And when we say I've got to do what I've got to do and I've got to do what I want to do and when it's opposed to the word of God and His perfect plan It does not accomplish what it's supposed to do. But I can tell you that there is coming a day that all eyes shall see him and every knee shall bow to the king of kings and confess Jesus Christ as the Lord of lords. And that glory will be accomplished. So here's how we wrap it together. The Apostle Paul understands this one thing. That trials are robes of glory trials are robes of glory. Wow, and you thought you just got to sit around complaining about the trials and the difficulties you were in. No, friends, they're opportunities to show how glorious our God is because when we put our faith in Him, He will deliver us through. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as we close this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 10 and we're done. You've been a wonderfully attentive audience this morning. I love this verse because of how powerful it is. 2 Corinthians 12:10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. The strongest you'll ever find yourself is when you are hoveling on your knees and trusting that God has to do it all. It is then God is ready to use you. There's a 10-year-old boy who decided to study judo However, little boy was not your typical martial arts type of young man. You see, he was in a devastating car accident, and he had lost his left arm in that car accident. So the boy began his judo lessons with his Japanese master, and the boy was doing very well, and after three months of training, the master taught the boy only one single move in judo. (coughs) One day the boy asked the master, Shouldn't I be learning more moves? This may be the only move you'll ever need, said the master to the boy. Not understanding, but believing in his teacher, the boy kept training under the judo master. Several months later, the master took this young boy to a tournament for the first time. Surprising himself, the boy easily won his first two matches with the only move that he knew. Third match proved to be a little bit more difficult. But after some time, his opponent got very frustrated and charged in, and wouldn't you know, little boy knew his one move and made it, and he won the match. The final match of the tournament came as he was there fighting to be the champion. This time, his opponent was much bigger, stronger, and much more experienced, and for a while, the boy was heavily overmatched. Concerned that the boy might get hurt, the referee was ready to stop and stop the fight. But the master said, no, no, let him continue. When they resumed the match, the big burly opponent rushed in at the little boy. And the little boy only had one move. And so he used his move and took the big opponent and put him on the mat and he won the championship. On the way home, the boy and the master reviewed every match in their minds. And the boy finally asked Encourage, Master, how could I possibly have won a tournament with only one move? The master turned to the boy and answered, you won for two reasons. First, you were able to master the most difficult throw in all of judo. And second, the only known defense for that move is for your opponent to grab your left arm that you lost in the car accident the little boy's weakness had become his biggest strength friends your biggest weakness is this you are not able you are not powerful you are limited you are depraved you are a sinner but what is the move that we need to have success in the christian life it's only one thing it's called faith My God is able. I am not. And because my God is able and I am not, what must I do? I must trust Him. Why? It's beautiful that God can do anything above all that we ask or think because God is able. Father, I pray that we would understand whether it be your church in New Hampshire, whether it be your church in Helena, Montana, whether it be in Alaska or missionaries throughout the world, we would trust the fact that you are able. Father, I don't know the needs of this congregation. I've not sat down with their pastor and spoken about them. But Father, I trust that your word is sufficient, that it is perfect in every way, And that you would use it this morning to encourage the struggling person here. That you would use it to strengthen the strongest person here. Knowing that the greatest power that we could ever have will be on our knees in submission to the King of Kings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.